Welcome to Employed, a podcast about careers. Whether you're at a point of having to make a career choice or you simply like to hear what others are passionate about, Employed is about the workers who make up our nation's economy. I'm Allie, and today we are looking at software engineering. One of the reasons I got into computers, and I think that I still like them, is that you get immediate feedback Mm -hmm. about whether what you did worked or not. Right. And like you said, there's some (laughs) fields that that is that is very difficult to do. Thank you so much, Scott, for joining us today. Can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? My name is Scott Miller. I got a degree in computer engineering, and I'm currently a staff software engineer at a medical instruments company. My job is to help build um, medical systems with the hardware and software and firmware that's required to do that. So a lot of it's behind the scenes, but like an engine in a car, it's what help makes a lot of it run. And so I've been a software engineer uh, now for about 15 years, and uh, I enjoy it. It's fun. And what does it mean to, to be a software engineer specifically? You know, software is, is, is everywhere. I, I used to tell my family that I work on computers without monitors, uh, because in the different jobs that I've had, even gotten to work on a space project or two, to where, you know, when you launch a satellite and the, the software is on there that you help design, there's no monitor on it. It's just the software that's running it. And so I, I think it, software is, it's under the hood of almost every piece of electronics that you see. And some of it is very complex, you know, something like an operating system, Windows or Mac or iPad, uh, all the way down to something like your, your thermostat, very likely has software on it too, that whenever you adjust the, the temperature, there's software that makes a decision about how to turn things on, turn things off and all that and keep you comfortable. So I, I work on anything in between, uh, all the way from the big stuff to the small stuff, just whatever needs to be done to, to help make the devices that I work on, make them, make them work. What made you interested in software engineering to begin with? So uh, when I was in eighth grade, uh, that was around, it was around early to mid nineties. And my dad got a computer. He had had one or two, but this was Windows 3.1 was oh. the operating system of the day. And, and I got curious about it and just started playing with it as a kid. And uh, my dad jokes that ever since I learned how to change the background on it, then I knew more than him about <laughs> computers. And so it was, it was just fun. And it was a hobby at that point. But as I went through high school, uh, there was an opportunity for me to go to a, a magnet school in Amarillo, Texas, which is where I grew up. And so I went to this magnet school and there were computer classes and I took them. And they talked about the basics of computers and uh, networking and just how computers work. It wasn't so much software yet, but it was interesting. What that led me to was uh, another path along this life is uh, I worked at an internet service provider doing tech support. And so that taught me more about computers and the internet, but it also taught me a lot of patience with people as yeah. well <laughs> as, as with any tech support job. Uh, being able to walk people through the steps that might be unfamiliar with them. So from there, um, uh, after high school, I decided to go to Texas A&M. And uh, my dad was an electrical engineer, so he was kind of pushing me towards engineering, but I knew I liked computers. And so the, the compromise was uh, computer engineering. I, I liked it. It was, a, it was a tough major. It took a lot of my time, and I didn't have a tremendous amount of free time, but I had some to be able to keep up a social life and still leave a a reasonably balanced life, but I, I won't lie, it was a tough major. After that, I got my first job uh, here in San Antonio, Texas, and I was working on military aircraft and doing embedded computers for them. 
And so as I've gone along this path of different jobs that I've had, it's just different types of computers that I've worked with. Uh, when I first started, my first job was, it was the systems that go out to a military jet and help diagnose any problems that are on it or upload new software to it. Next, I got to work on, like I said, some of the space projects. So there were two uh, missions that I helped with. One's called MMS, the other is Cygnus. Both of them are not super well-known missions, but they're NASA missions that were helping study the magnetosphere around the Earth and then hurricanes uh, that are happening uh, here on Earth and uh, watching what they do. And recently I've been involved with uh, medical instruments. There's a cancer imaging device that we're working with that we're hoping to bring to market. And so as my career of 15 years has gone on, it's just been different types of uh, projects that I've helped bring to life. And I think that's true with a lot of uh, software engineering and probably the other engineering disciplines is that as you go through your career, you're, you're bringing to life different projects and those projects will start, go through integration or you know implementation, make it happen, testing, testing, and then you deploy it hopefully. Mm-hmm. And it ends up out there, hopefully doing something useful. And you go from project to project, uh, doing whatever is needed. So right now I'm in the medical world and uh, we'll, we'll see what comes next after this current product hopefully gets to market soon. Yeah, that's incredible of how vast and how much variety there is in, in software engineering. You go from aircrafts to NASA to, to medical instruments. It just sounds like there's so many different options available. What's interesting, though, is I had a, a former boss of mine who I work with now, but she, we've been together at two companies. And uh, she went to this company that I am at earlier than I did. And we met for lunch one time, just catching up. Hey, how's your new job? And, and I asked her and she said, well... You know, it's, it's spacecraft that don't fly. That's really, <laughs> because we had both worked on spacecraft and a lot of these systems boil down to very similar things, which allows you to transition between fields. I, I mentioned a thermostat, a thermostat and, you know, the software in a, a microphone or even AirPods, which I have right now, it all boils down to you're interacting with hardware. And then you want to make something happen with that interaction. They want to pick up my voice for AirPods and then you transmit it somewhere. And it's similar with a thermostat. You're inputting what you want to happen and then it makes control signals that send out to the AC. So yes, you, you have the opportunity to move around between a lot of industries and projects, but at its core, it's all pretty similar. Sure. And that's what allows you. That's what allows you to do that. For your position, what is the level of education that's required? Or did you have to obtain any specific certifications or licenses to to become a software engineer? The majority of uh, software engineers out there usually have at least a bachelor's. And it's usually a computer-related field. Uh, I did computer engineering myself. So that has a little bit of electrical engineering and then the the rest of it's computer science. Uh, A lot of people uh, have computer science degrees, and I'm sure you've seen software developers that have those. There are also people that get into software engineering, and they didn't necessarily have that degree, but they they worked their way into it. Also, I would say, though, that if you have a technical degree and you find the right opportunity, you can make it happen. Uh, This person I was talking about that said that medical systems are spacecraft uh, that don't fly, she got a degree in physics, but her path in life uh, led her to be able to she knows computers very well, but she's also very good at testing. And so that's where she is now. So I wouldn't say that you have to have a, a computer degree in order to get into a software engineering position, but 
it certainly does make it easier because we're judged by resumes is like, you know, it's a summary of your life sometimes, or even when you come out of college, that's, that's all that people know. But it's certainly possible to get into that field, uh, networking, just making connections, friends, not being afraid of doing something a little different and just seeing where it takes you. What are the demographics of your field? Maybe in your workplace, do you see, I mean, I assume it's a more male-dominated field, <laughs> but maybe I'm incorrect. It, it's it certainly, you know, historically, I think, has been more male-dominated. You look at a movie like, uh, say, uh, Apollo 13, and all the engineers that are in that mission control room, they're male. <laughs> the majority of them are. And so there were a few women, and there's been some cool movies that came out about that. But predominantly, it has been men. I, I went to college. I started in 2000 and graduated in 2005. And I remember one class, uh, a computer science class, and we had one woman that was in the class, but she was the teacher. The rest of them were male. Uh, that was the only class in which I had that it was all male. But yes, I do think that it is changing. Okay. You know, here we are almost 20 years later. And I've thought about my own software group, uh, which is uh, six people. It's three males and three females. And uh, we actually just had somebody retire, a, a female that was, she was awesome. One of our best software engineers. And she had a doctorate, was really helping the company move along, but she just retired. And so she was a crucial part of the team. So I do think that it is changing, you know, as we try and make it a little more equal of, I think just giving people the same opportunities everywhere and trying not to let the peer pressure of saying that just because somebody else uh, didn't choose to do it doesn't mean that I shouldn't either. What salary could someone typically expect to make in this field? When you start, if, if you were to get a, say, a computer engineering degree straight out of college, these days, probably between sixty dollars and $70,000 a year. And it would likely come as a salaried job. And so you would get benefits with that as well. Medical, dental, all that good stuff. Possibly a 401k uh, matching, but depends on the company. So you would usually start out about there. The longer you stay in it, if you progress either along a technical or a management track, you can get into the, to the mid $100,000, so about 150, all the way up to say $200,000 if you took the track of being, uh, say, a high-level software manager or something like VP of engineering. It varies quite a bit, but I would say that you start about 60 or 70K. And then depending on the track that you take, you could get way up into the 150 to 200. I would say that probably the average uh, software engineer salary, if you average all of that together, is probably a little over $100,000 a year. Any additional benefits to working in that field that you might not find in another industry? We, we talked about different projects mm -hmm. happening. You help bring something to life and then you move on. I, I think that is something that's it's somewhat unique, but it's also with just engineering in general, I guess, is that you get the opportunity to work on a lot of different things. And sometimes you get really lucky. Uh, like I got to work on NASA projects and I was really lucky with that. You know, and I'm sure that just having that knowledge uh, to use in your personal life must create a huge advantage, especially as we're 
turning over to a very virtual world, especially this year, just having that knowledge. And of course, I know that from being married to a mechanical engineer that if something breaks, he's the person I call first before I call any other professional. And I just, I don't know if you've seen that in your life as well. I've joked that uh, 2020 is the year that whenever you see the message, contact your system, system administrator, what that really means is you're on your own. Good luck. And so, you know, especially teachers this year, I joked that last spring, they all became IT directors because every one of them had to figure out very rapidly about how to use computers. So it is becoming a big part of our world. And and I have three children and I try and teach them to be as competent as possible. But uh, yes, having a software engineering uh, background can help you dramatically with just day-to-day stuff. One of the biggest ways in which I find that it's uh, practically very helpful for me is in learning how to manage uh, large sets of of data that are moving around. You know, like, for example, my finances, I do all of it just in Excel because it's the it's the way that I can look at the data that makes most sense to me and say, uh, you know, like we did a fundraiser recently with my son that we were painting curbs. And we had over 100 curbs that we painted, but I was able to manage all that information on a shared Google sheet and being very familiar with how to organize it and slice it and dice it and help people see that they have access to it. So there is a very practical nature of it. I I hope that that training is becoming more common within our schooling. And I think somewhat it is, but as unfortunate as coronavirus is, uh, one of the silver linings that has happened is that I think that kids have gotten a crash course in different ways to use a computer and what works and what doesn't. Uh, Kids even this year have, they've had their first taste of what conference calls feel like, (laughs) which usually is something (laughs) saved until you're an adult in a a corporate session, but they they now experience that. So I I think, yes, in summary, it does give you a small advantage of being able to to know computers and they're becoming a big part of our life. With your job, how is your progress measured and who are you managed by? The company I'm at is only about 35 people right now. And so the software team is only six people. And so I'm managed directly by, he's the vice president of of software engineering. This is a somewhat unique situation. If you're working in a larger company, you might have a line manager. And at the company I used to work for, I had a manager who was responsible for you know, 10 to 15 of us, but then uh, somebody oversaw her who is in charge of, you know, them like 30, 45 people and it goes all the way up. And the last company I was at, there was about 2,500 employees on site. It depends on where you go, but I think your, your level of who you report to, you become more autonomous the more that you grow in this career to where you are expected that you're going to help take care of your own tasking and define tasking for other people as you get older in your career. So me at 15 years in, I mostly define my own tasking uh, during the day and I help the group define tasking. And you, you get to the point hopefully that you can identify what's important to get a project done. You identify those tasks and then either you take care of them or you help dole them out. So at the beginning, you're reporting to a line manager of, you know, Here's what I did today. Here's what I'm going to do tomorrow. What do you want me to do next? Uh, But that progresses. If you stay on the career path that you so choose it, that you become responsible for your own tasking. So in a way, I would say that after 20 years of a field like this, you're, you're effectively reporting to yourself. You will have a boss 
absolutely. But you're going to define a lot of your own tasking as right. you get more in the career. What are your typical work hours? It's changed uh, throughout my career. Like right now, I'm about seven to four. But in general, throughout my career, it's been eight-hour days plus work when necessary. You know, for example, like on the uh, on the on the NASA projects that I worked on, there were some critical times that we really needed to make sure something was done in order for another team to progress. And so there were some nights that I would work several hours. And maybe, let's see, in those particular projects, maybe four weekends out of the year, I would have to work some on the weekends, but I wasn't there the entire weekend. I'm expected to put at least my 40 hours in and then be available when needed to be able to, to help out with a project. One thing I have found, though, is that if you do a good job of managing the tasks that are in front of you and defining which ones are urgent and important, and you take care of those first, then you minimize your you're outside of work hours. Right. So if you have a good organization system that can really help you not be surprised by tasks that need to be done 10 minutes ago, I've gotten to the point now that I can uh, organize tasks pretty well. So unnecessary overtime hasn't become an issue at this point. It has taken me some time to grow to be able to have a good system for managing those tasks. I, I do think the crucial part of having a good work-life balance in a career like this is organizing your own tasks and making sure that you get the urgent and important ones done first. And then after that, you can work on maybe important things or just urgent things. Can you walk me through an average day at your job? Uh, with, with Corona time, I, I wake up at about uh, 6.15, 6.30, and then I start working at home uh, by about 7. And so I, uh, I start the day off by looking at my task list that I maintain on the computer. And I look through and see what is, what is most important right now in order to help make overall progress on the device that we're making, or what is something that I can do that will help free up somebody else's tasking. If a mechanical engineer is waiting on me in order to get some data about some fans on the systems, and they asked me yesterday, well, I know they need the answer as soon as possible. So right. I would work those types of tasks and prioritize them. The next thing I would do is probably look at email. I keep it closed until then. And so my, my uh, company right now, because it's only 35 people, I don't get that many emails. But at the previous company I was at, sometimes I would have, you know, five or 10 actual important ones to process. I would batch my emails. And then at that point, I would just start uh, working on tasks. Throughout the day, you're going to have interruptions and things that become urgent and important that you're going to have to take care of, just like with every job. I found, I think, that whenever I start my day, if I had no interruptions, here's what I could get done, and I'll put those tasks on my list. And then I usually get done about 25% of them by the end of the day, right? With software in particular, say you go to run a test and you figure that you've made the appropriate code changes, it shouldn't be a problem at all. And then you notice that it fails one out of four times, and it makes no sense why. And so you'll talk with your colleagues, you'll look at logs, and you'll dig and you'll dig and you'll dig. And what you thought was going to be a, a one hour task has now turned into at least a four. And so it's just like fixing stuff at, at home, as I'm sure spouses can attest to that, you know, one of them says, well, it'll take an hour to do this and it takes the whole day, right? Right. And that's a common occurrence. And so I just work those tasks throughout the day. As it, it gets toward late afternoon for me, my mind starts to wind down from the energy that it had in the morning. I'm more mm -hmm. of a morning person. 
And so I'll start to maybe focus on the tasks that don't take as much software brain power mm-hmm. uh, to where it's just maybe small organization tasks or pinging someone to remind them of something. Uh, just looking at the tasks for the next day and seeing what you could tackle in the morning. I have found um, over, over time in my career that one of the best ways to make sure that a problem gets solved if I'm struggling with it in the late afternoon is sometimes the right thing to do is to just sleep on it and let it go. And I could, you know, if it was four o'clock and I found out about a problem that is a pretty tough one to solve, I could probably work on it that night. And it would maybe take me, what, let's pretend two hours. If I wait until the next morning, my brain is usually in a much better state and I could solve that same problem, say in 30 minutes. If I put the right tasks at the right time, I can be much more efficient with my time, which helps with the tasking and the work-life balance too. That's a typical day. It's just, it's task after task of a bug report, an enhancement, data that somebody needs. As you get older, you're designing systems in total. And then you do have your meetings, the Mm -hmm. conference calls and status reports and all that. That's, that's about a typical day. You said that you're, you're made up of of about 35 people. What are those other roles? Uh, Engineering is about half of that. In the particular company I'm at, we are, we're trying to bring a new type of device to market. And so the, the big part uh, that I'm involved in is the engineering effort to be able to help bring that device to market. So I'd say about half of those, uh, 35, is comprised of there's software engineers, uh, there's electrical engineers that are actually making the boards and say the power supplies that are running the thing, and the mechanical engineers who are designing the, the cart, the handle, the, you know, all the way up to the, the monitor mount and the wheels and all that and the fans, whatever else is needed for it. Here's a group of uh, accounting and general secretary type roles that is just office organization. There's also a, a quality team that their job is to help oversee testing that's happening of the device as it progresses. And also another one of their major roles is that uh, they're communicating, in this case, with the FDA. Uh, trying to make sure that our device is safe and it does what it's supposed to. Safety is the thing that people think about with the FDA, and that's a good thing. Absolutely. It's necessary for them to focus on. But something else that's very important that they do is making sure that the efficacy of the product is as the company advertises it. Just like a medicine, that it may not be harmful to you, but if it makes a claim about what it does, People need to know that they can trust that that claim is true. With our particular device, we're making assertions about what it is useful for, for cancer imaging. And that needs to be verified and backed up by data and studies and statistics and all that. So the quality team takes all of that input and they'll talk to the FDA uh, to help make sure that they're comfortable with it. And so we're working through that process right now. You mentioned that you will work on some software bugs. Who finds those bugs? Do you, is that the quality team or do you guys hire out other engineers to do the testing or do your do like clients test? How do, who finds those bugs? Variety of, of all above, depending on where your project is at. At an inception phase of a project to where you're uh, making a prototype. And the truth is that most bugs that you're going to find are bugs that you find on your own. <laughs> and so it's like with anything, whenever you make it, you start to make mistakes and you see it yourself. Once you get through an initial design phase and you have, you know, something that, that works, but it's not very stable. I'm sure everybody has used apps that crash all the time. 
And that's because they never got past the initial prototype slash initial release phase into the next phase, which is you've stood something up and you need to start testing it somewhat more formally. At my company, to test at that stage, we use a combination of myself and other developers who are also finding issues, but also you have a test team that they're kind of in between a quality group and the software folks. There are They have a combination of skills that allows them to find bugs, but still report them in a technical enough manner that they can quickly communicate the information. And then the, there's a third and fourth stage that I think about. The third is that whenever it gets to be what we call formal testing, which is you're going to release something to a customer. How do we make sure that it's okay? And how do we make sure all the documents are in place to say that we did that testing so we could document it? And that's where the quality assurance role would come in. Of You have members of the QA group that their job is to formally test it. And they're going to help with all the documentation. You know, it's literally you're checking off boxes to make sure that each test step runs correctly. And any failure has to be reported and understood before you can say that it was a good release. So that's the third stage. And then the fourth is it's operational deployment to where you've given it to users. And if uh, something goes wrong, they're going to tell you about it. And that is they are your testers. And so all of us, every time we use an app and it doesn't work right, we are effectively a tester. What's difficult about that fourth stage with fixing software is that it's very hard for them to communicate enough information, the person that that used it and it didn't work well. It's hard for them to communicate that information all the way back to the engineers that helped design it in order for them to fix it. That's why it's, it's very important that the more testing you do in that first and second stage and you do it well, the much better project you will create. Because if it is pushed through too quickly, you'll end up with something that doesn't work well and the users find the bugs. And if your product is not absolutely crucial to their world, the truth is they're just not going to use it. <laughs> and I can't blame them. Yeah, testing is different stages. The more that you find at the beginning, the better product you will make. Let's say, you know, before COVID, when you were working in the office, how often did you interact with other people? So whether it be other coworkers versus how often were you just by yourself on the computer? In my previous job, everybody had an office, which, which I thought was a great thing. It gave you an opportunity that if you just needed to focus on something, you could close the door mm-hmm. and we would still interact with each other in the lab and such. At my current job, Uh, with the medical instruments. One of the things that I was a little hesitant about in changing jobs was that they didn't have offices for everybody. It was a cube farm. Cube farms were common. I thought, well, okay, but I'm kind of losing an office. I thought it would be a bad thing. It's been actually a really, a really good thing for helping collaboration and uh, just making a, a better device. With a smaller company, you know everybody that you're interacting with. And so at a typical day at my current job prior to COVID, it would be that, you know, I, I have four or five people directly around me that are in the same engineering type area. Say they're either systems engineering or software engineering, maybe a, an electrical or two that I interact with as soon as I have a question. You know, somebody will turn around and say, hey, Scott, you told me to do it this way. It's not quite working like that. What do you think about this? 
And so we'll work through an issue. And that's where a lot of your interruptions um, come from is that it's just people around you. you. You are interacting a lot. One of the reasons that, that I do prefer to go to work early, I start at seven, is that that gives me time at the beginning of the day to look at what's important to me for tasking. And also, if there's something that I do need complete focus for without a lot of people around, that at least gives me an hour or two to help do that. And then the interruptions and your other tasking can begin. What is the best day that you've had at your job when you felt very accomplished and knew that you were in the right field? When you feel happy about something that went out into the world and you felt like made a small difference. Uh, with the NASA missions that I worked on, you know, that's one that's easy to think about, that you helped hopefully bring about a little better science to the world, hopefully improve people's lives. So to be able to see satellites that are out there that you're communicating with and getting good science data from, that's rewarding, of course. There's also days that you solve a problem that has been plaguing you or the team for weeks, mm-hmm. or you, you had a realization on something and you helped solve a very hard problem that it was just very difficult for anybody to get a grip on. Days that uh, you're able to solve a problem like that, those are fun to me. And that's what keeps me coming back, I think, day after day, is that there's problems to solve. And some of them are very tough because, say, they, they happen one out of 100 times. But one out of 100 times, the machine completely shuts down and no data for the user, which is a very sad day. And so being able to find the root issue to a problem like that is a lot of fun. And those are, those are good days. It's, it's almost like very tangible that you're able to see the rewards of it. You're able to see whether it worked or it didn't. Whereas in other fields, you're not really yes. sure if what, if you know, if you've made a difference or yes. not. So and that's a great point that you bring up. One of the, one of the reasons I got into computers and I think that I still like them is that you get immediate feedback mm-hmm. about whether what you did worked or not. Right. And right. like you said, there's some <laughs> fields that that is, that is very difficult yeah. to do. In something like the medical yeah. field, you're, you're making recommendations about what you think the right thing to do is, and you help guide people along the path that you think they should take. And sometimes you're going to see that patient very soon. Sometimes you might never see them again. And, and you don't know if what you did worked. I like that computers are, um, they, they always do what we tell them. That's not necessarily what we want. Physics doesn't lie with a lot of the principles that we understand. Having that sort of control and understanding is probably, I don't know, maybe it feeds into a control freak side of me. It helps me uh, enjoy computers because you do get that immediate feedback. The disadvantage of it is that the problems can be very hard and very frustrating at times to understand about why it's happening. Yeah. Because it's a chain of events or hard to reproduce or it just makes no sense why that can happen. And then you find out it was a loose connection and you thought it was a software problem. I remember hearing a, a funny quote or something about engineers and it just said, the good news is I fixed the problem. The bad news is I have no idea how. My wife will ask me when I attempt to fix things around the house, she'll say, did you fix it yet? And I, every time I'll, I'll respond and say, that's not the question. The question is, have you found the problem yet? Once you find the exact problem, problems usually are not not hard to fix. My, my boss has a saying that it's similar. It's a great point that you have in that he said that uh, technical problems, finding the problem is usually the hardest part. 
And then once you know the exact problem, you can fix it. And that's usually the easier part. Societal problems are the opposite. He said that everybody knows what the problem is. Yeah. He says almost, almost everybody can agree on what the issues are. The, the hard part is what to do about it. Right, right. So, because there's a lot of different solutions that people propose. So it's the technical world is opposite of societal problems. I, I like that analogy. Okay, so what's maybe a bad day that you've had at work? Or what does a bad day look like for you? Or what's a challenge <laughs> that you often face? A challenging day is one in which you had maybe just one or two tasks that you thought you would get through that day. Did they just get blown to smithereens as far as the time that you were able to spend on them? Because either something else urgent and important come up, or you realize that it's going to be much harder than you thought it was going to be, or it's overwhelming. You know, if you, if you view happiness as reality and expectations, and you have expectations set at, say, expectations level five from one to 10, and then reality comes in at two that day, that's a bad day. <laughs> the frustrating days are the days that you have expectations about what's going to get done or how a meeting's going to go or what data you're going to have. And then you look at the data and you realize this is terrifying because it means there are a lot of problems we don't even understand. But, and that's when you, you enter more bug reports and you work through them. So for me, maybe a few days every month are like that. But most are normal-ish days and some are good days. What is the weirdest or most unexpected experience <laughs> that you've had at work? Uh, one of the, the NASA projects that I was working, it was, uh, it was very, very close to launch time. And it was literally the day of the day that the launch was intended to happen for the Cygnus satellites. Uh, it was actually scrubbed because of a mechanical problem that they had on the, the deployment mechanism to lower down the, the rocket out of a plane and shoot up. That's how this one in particular launched. Comes out of the belly of a plane and fires a rocket. So that day was scrubbed. That night, I was doing testing with one of my electrical engineer friends. And he said, Scott, why isn't the battery charging? We were testing on a, on a ground station setup, just a test bench, you know, not the actual satellites. But the battery on the satellite indeed was not charging. And that's super bad for a satellite because if it goes long enough without charging with the solar panels that we had on it, it will die. And then it's not that it falls down from earth, but it's just a orbiting piece of space junk that cost, you know, $10 million to make. And so, so he said, why isn't the battery charging? We looked at it, looked at it. We figured it had to be a bad connection. You know, it, we, we figured it was nothing fundamental to what, what the satellite was, right? Because we were about to launch. We would hope that we've gone through that testing. So we keep looking and looking for root cause and we don't stop until we find it because we know it's important. And I'm looking at the software that controls the commands that are sent in order to help charge the battery. And I had a heavy drop in my stomach when I saw something in the source code that I realized was a huge mistake. And that mistake was that when commands came in uh, from the ground, our simulated ground station there, there was one command that gets sent that configures the electronics a certain way that because of a missing statement in the software, it actually executed the next command also. And depending on what software had run prior to that, there was some memory funny things that could have happened that it's possible that a value could get written to the electronics that tells the battery to charge once every five days, whereas it's supposed to be charging once every 90 minutes. So that could kill the 
kill the satellites. That was a shocking and terrifying day that realized that that happened. Is also very strange and wonderful that we found it that day because it was a whirlwind of a few days, but we were able to modify some of the sequences that come up on the, on the spacecraft whenever it would first launch and deploy such that that software wouldn't be a problem. We worked around it. Finding out was a super weird experience and, and a stressful one. What, what I also learned that day too, you know, reflecting back on it, you always look things in perspective, is that it was my fault, that particular piece of the source code. I was the one that forgot to put that statement in. It was a year and a half prior, but it was also, it was on all of us. There were people that should have noticed that in the data, and there are people that should have noticed that in the testing. And at the end, you know, I did the best that I could. I felt like I gave 110% to that project. So even if the worst had happened and those satellites failed, I would still have to be at peace that in the big picture, it was okay. It may have taken a while to get there, but I did the best that I could. And there's something funny that happens that whenever something like that really bad happens, you would think that it would be super, super stressful and you wouldn't know what to do. And there's a point at which you and the team realize that there's only one thing you can do, and that's to accept it and try to fix it. You staying mad about it and that it's going to delay and everything, it doesn't do any good. Certainly not any other days like that that I've had. That was a, that was a, that was a one-off, but it was a, a very good life lesson for me. It was good. Do you feel like you have any advice for maybe a younger person who is maybe considering this field? If you enjoy figuring problems out and you're able to work through them without getting too frustrated, then some sort of engineering might might be a good fit for you. Being able to work through problems without getting frustrated is is crucial to a field like this. I've met a guy before that he was amazing with lasers, you know, doctorate and all kinds of work. Super smart guy. We think of lasers as super complicated. And to me, they are black magic. It's really cool stuff. We were chatting one day and he said, yeah, I could never do software. I hated software. He said, I'm horrible at software. I said, why? He said, well, in college, I hated that just one little thing could mess up everything. And I, I said, yeah, man. I said, that's, that's right. And so, but for him, you know, he was still able to deal with the the physics of lasers and he really enjoyed that. But being able to work through a problem without getting too frustrated and still wanting to fix it is important. I, I would say working on your ability to be able to deal with things that are very hard, just one step at a time, because that's all you can do. That can help you progress either in maybe trying to choose something like a major like this or within your first job. Just stay very focused on what the problem is and you methodically work through it as logically as you can. Thank you to Scott for donating his time to the show. If you or someone you know is interested in becoming a future guest, please email employedpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at employedpodcast and check out our new website, employedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. 